Well, amen. Thank you guys for that. Uh, well, Hurricane Harvey hit the Texas-Louisiana coast back in 2017. You may remember that. It was, uh, it's tied with Katrina, Hurricane Katrina, in 2005 as the costliest hurricane on record. $125 billion at worth of damage. That was in 2017 dollars. So with all the inflation we've had during the Biden administration, that's probably equivalent to about, I don't know, $50 trillion in today's dollars. Who knows? But uh, it was August of 2017. It was a devastating Category 4 hurricane. Like I said, it made landfall around Texas and uh, Louisiana. But much of the damage and, and the death toll, over 100 people killed, uh, was due to the catastrophic flooding in and around the Houston metropolitan area. Now, Wendy and I lived in Colorado by then, but we grew, I grew up in Houston. We had lived there as a married family for several years. Four of our six children were born in Houston. I still have a lot of relatives in Houston. Uh, and it was surreal for us to watch the news of all the devastation down in, uh, in Houston. So here's some, some of the pictures from the news at that time. That's a, a shot of Houston just showing the devastating uh, flooding. You know, Houston's called the Bayou City. It's basically like a bowl. And when it rains and flash flooding, it just fills up. And the flooding is, is devastating. And this was the remnants of that hurricane as it worked its way up the coast. Uh, just some of the devastation to homes and vehicles all around the greater Houston area. It was really something. Uh, but as I saw these pictures and thought about that, that hurricane and the flooding, I was reminded of a, a great passage that I want to start our service with today from Revelation chapter 21. And I was reminded of it because it says that someday in the eternal kingdom, there's going to be no more sea. So I want to read from Revelation 21 before we get to our primary uh, text. Uh, but just as a way of setting the stage for this idea that a better day is coming. So Revelation 21.1, Now I saw, heaven, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. You know, throughout Scripture and throughout God's plan of, of the ages and human history, water often is used in the context of evil, either as a symbol for evil or uh, the presence of evil. You see it again and again. It goes all the way back really to uh, the global flood which God used water to judge the, the world because of the wickedness of mankind. Uh, you see it in, in the Psalms, for example, that talks about uh, the, the tumult of the people is like the noise of the sea. You see it in, in some of the prophets like Isaiah. We're going to touch on Isaiah's prophecy several times this morning, but uh, it talks about this, this uh, you know, reptile from the sea named Leviathan that, that comes up out of the sea. Uh, Isaiah later on talks about how the wicked in the world are like a troubled sea. Uh, and then, of course, in an eschatological sense, in the end times, you see uh, Daniel that we talked about last week. Well, in Daniel 7, Daniel's famous vision, he talks about four great beasts that come up where? Out of the sea. And they represent four empires that would dominate the world until ultimately Israel's gets her kingdom, as we're going to talk about this morning. And then Revelation 13, I, I've 
touched on that a lot over the last year as I was uh, researching and writing the Spirit of the False Prophet book. But that's where we get the most information about the Antichrist and False Prophet as it relates to what they do during the future seven-year tribulation. Remember, we talked about that last week, that seven-year period just prior to the return of Christ. But Revelation 13, verse 1 says, I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. Uh, That's the Antichrist. Later on, he talks about another beast from the earth. That's the false prophet, his second in command. But the sea is often spoken of in a context of evil. So it's no surprise then, when all is said and done and time shall be no more, that we will find ourselves in the new heavens and the new earth with no more sea. But he goes on and says, Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. No, Jerusalem's been in the news a lot lately, hasn't it? Um, and when we look over at Jerusalem today and all that's going on with this uh, war, with Hamas and Hezbollah and now Iran getting into the fray and all these other surrounding nations, uh, you know, it's not a very happy place, is it? It's not a very uh, pleasant uh, place. But the Bible tells us someday there's going to be a, a new Jerusalem uh, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That wedding terminology that goes all the way back to the creation of mankind, male and female, and they were told to leave father and mother and cleave to their husband. Marriage is a divine institution of of mankind. It's an earthly institution. Uh, We're not given in marriage in heaven. We'll still know each other, but marriage is a uniquely earthly institution. In uh, heaven, we we won't be husband and wife. But the Bible uses that metaphor of both the church and Israel. Uh, it's, it speaks of intimacy. Uh, and just like in the physical sense, the two become one, as Genesis tells us, ultimately uh, we will be uh, in, a, in a permanent intimate relationship with our Lord. So he describes this new Jerusalem as a bride adorned for her husband. And then he goes on, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He will dwell with them. They shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. That's a very unique statement that you see throughout Scripture speaking of that ultimate reconciliation between God and mankind. You know, we can be reconciled to a holy God by faith alone. That's the only way you can be reconciled. Uh, Romans chapter 5 makes that clear. But that reconciliation, even though it's positional and spiritual, once we've by faith trusted in Christ, we are uh, declared positionally righteous before a holy God. Nothing can ever change that. But we all know, and the Bible attests to this, that as long as we're topside this earth, our practical righteousness does not always reflect our positional righteousness. We still sometimes walk in the flesh. We still sometimes sin. We still have that struggle that Paul describes in Romans 7 in his own life, and he teaches us doctrinally about in passages like Ephesians 5 and Galatians 5 and 1 Corinthians 6 and others. So, Someday, when time shall be no more and we leave this realm of time, space, and matter, we will once and for all, permanently, in a unique way, be reconciled to God in in perfect intimacy. And that's what he's talking about there when he talks about we will dwell with him, we will be his people, he will be our uh, God, and so forth. And then a passage we all love and, and know well, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's a poetic way of saying what he goes on to explicitly state that there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. 
And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. What a glorious picture of the eternal state, the eternal aspect of the coming kingdom someday. You know, Revelation is, is fascinating because here we see uh, Jesus described as true and faithful. In chapter 19, which we're going to look at in a moment of Revelation, he comes back to inaugurate the kingdom, and he is described as faithful and true. Uh, and it's just a beautiful picture of where things are heading. That's why I call, I'm calling this a better day is coming. Uh, now more than ever before, we need to, to recognize that things will not always be the way they are today. It will not always be like this. A better day is coming. So I want to invite you to turn with me to Zechariah chapter 14. I'm going to read the text. If you don't have a Bible, you can just listen as I read the text as a kind of a starting point for our discussion this morning. And by the way, if you know of anybody that needs a Bible, we have a whole stack of gift Bibles out in the lobby. They're there for you to take and give away. No greater gift that you can give someone than the Word of God, right? It's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. So feel free to take one of those if you'd like. But uh, let's read this text, and then I'll come back and give you a little bit more of a historical context. But the Bible says, beginning in verse 1, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. This is talking about the second coming of Christ which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall be moved toward the north, half of it toward the south. You know, next week in part two of our message, we're going to look at some of the characteristics of the coming kingdom, and some of those are geographical. You know, the, the Temple Mount, as it's described in the kingdom someday, is nothing like the Temple Mount of, of ancient times or the Temple Mount as it exists today. Sometimes people will get all uh, hot and bothered about the fact that before the temple can be rebuilt, they've got to move the Dome of the Rock because it sits on part of the Temple Mount. That's nothing. It's, it's much bigger than that. I mean, it's, it's going to encompass not just the current Temple Mount area, but a much broader area. And we'll talk more about that next week. But that's what he's describing here is the geological uh, and geographical changes that take place at the return of Christ. Verse 5, Then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach Azal. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of King Uzziah, the king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with you. It shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light. The lights will diminish. It shall be one day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. But at evening time it shall happen that it will be light. And in the day it shall be that living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and half of them toward the western sea. In both summer and winter it shall occur. And this is the key, verse 9. And the Lord shall be king over the whole earth, over all the earth. In that day it shall be the Lord is one and his name one. So Zechariah, the prophet, uh, doesn't get a whole lot of attention, not nearly as much as he should. Uh, I'm sure that some of you in here are probably thinking, wow, when's the last time I read the prophet Zechariah? 
but he's a fascinating prophet, 14 chapters, as we shall see, and his name in Hebrew means Yahweh remembers. What a great name for a prophet, especially this prophet, because he's writing in a context that it was a low point uh, for the nation of Israel. They had begun returning uh, from captivity in Babylon. The temple was just beginning to rebuild, but they had had decades of uh, you know, oppression and lived in captivity. First, the northern kingdom in 722 uh, B.C. with the fall of Samaria, and then in 586 B.C., the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians. And it was a low point in their history, and they needed to be reminded that a better day was coming. They needed to be reminded that God's covenant promises and His kingdom promises will come true, even though it sure didn't seem like it in their day. So God calls this prophet, whose name means Yahweh remembers, to remind the people of Israel that indeed Yahweh will remember uh, His uh, promises. Zechariah was a contemporary of Haggai, another Old Testament prophet. They uh, ministered at the same time. Zechariah began ministering approximately two months after Haggai did, according to the biblical uh, dates that we read in Scripture. Um, but they were both ministering to this restoration community, meaning the, the people, the, the Jews that had come back and begun to come back uh, in the land. And their messages complement one another. Uh, Haggai in his teaching, stressed the coming rebuilt temple in all of its glory. And Zechariah stresses the national renewal that would come in the kingdom someday when the people repented and returned to God. We talked a couple of weeks ago in our look at Romans 9 through 11 about how the nation of Israel will someday call on the name of the Lord, as the Old Testament prophets predicted, and as Jesus himself predicted in Matthew 23, and then they will be delivered into the kingdom. But before that can happen, they must individually believe the gospel. There's no way you can have national deliverance without individual regeneration. And so you've got to believe uh, the gospel, as we talked about. So these two prophets, Zechariah and Haggai, kind of work hand in glove. Um, and by the way, they followed those ministries of, of Ezekiel and Daniel. Last week we talked about Daniel's prophecy. These prophets came along oh, 100 years or so uh, later ministering uh, to the post-exilic community. The, uh, Haggai and Zechariah were dealing with the people that had returned. Daniel was dealing with people in the midst of their exile. So to put a, a historic date on it, we know Zechariah began his ministry around 520 B.C. It lasted to 480 B.C., some 40 years. As I said, the temple had been destroyed in 586 B.C., so by the time uh, of Zechariah's end, ending of his ministry, the 70 years of captivity that Jeremiah the prophet had predicted were coming to an end, and the temple was beginning to be rebuilt under the leadership of Zerubbabel and later Nehemiah. Uh, but expectations were still at an all-time low. By this time, people in Israel, many of them, had given up hope in the mess messianic promise. They'd been waiting and waiting and waiting. It goes all the way back to Father Abraham and this promise of a coming global kingdom someday. It had been reiterated, as we talked about a few weeks ago, to King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, you know, a thousand years before Christ and 500 years before Zechariah's day, and yet still no kingdom. All they saw was, you know, devastation and uh, captivity. And, uh, of course, this was all part of God's plan, the people of Israel rebelled against the Lord through prophets, priests, kings, and judges, and it's not until the King of kings and Lord of lords comes back that they will finally get their kingdom. But I just want you to picture what it must have been like in that day. 
And then I want you to overlay that to what it's like today. So here we are, 2,000 years after the first advent of Christ, when he came to declare the kingdom is at hand. But unfortunately, the nation of Israel crowned him with thorns instead of a king's crown, rejected the Messiah. And so we still wait. We're still waiting for the fulfillment of all of these prophecies that we're talking about that we're going to look at this morning. And much like the people of Israel in Zechariah's day, the people of Israel today have given up on the messianic hope. And you can kind of understand uh, how we got here. I talked about this a few weeks ago in this mini-series on Israel, about how as time went on, early church leaders in the 2nd, 3rd, 4th centuries began to say, well, boy, we sure expected him to come back by now. We sure expected the kingdom to be global by now and the king to be sitting on the throne, but I don't see him. So maybe we misunderstood something, and they went back and began reinterpreting the scriptures in a symbolic or metaphorical or spiritualized sense. But as we shall see this morning, there's no way you can support that from the biblical text. So the theme of Zechariah is the fulfillment of the promised messianic kingdom. And one of the amazing things about this short prophecy, only 14 chapters, is that it contains more messianic prophecies than every other Old Testament book except Isaiah. Now, Isaiah is 66 chapters, and it has a ton of messianic content all about the coming Messiah. But Zechariah is second, second only to Isaiah, and it's only got 14 chapters. In Zechariah, we see Christ's second coming, his reign, his priesthood, his kingship. We see his humanity and his deity and his building of the temple and his self-humiliation. We see his bringing in of lasting peace in Zechariah's prophecy. We see specific prophecies like his rejection and betrayal for 30 pieces of silver. You know, last week we looked at the stunning accuracy of Daniel's prophecy to the day of that 490-year prophecy, 483 years of which have been fulfilled precisely as Daniel predicted. But this is a pretty precise prophecy, too, that we see uh, take place uh, some 500 years later. Uh, we see his being smitten by the sword of the Lord. If you outline Zechariah's prophecy, it's basically got two sections. The first eight chapters of Zechariah are messages to the returning exiles in his day. It's a call to national repentance, and he gives a series of eight uh, visions for the people. Uh, prophets often had a message for their contemporaries, the people alive at their time, but they also often spoke of a far-reaching prophecy, and that's the case with the second part of Zechariah's prophecy, which were later oracles about the Messiah himself. And Zechariah promises the king is coming. Judah will be restored. He even predicts Christ will be rejected before he is uh, welcomed and crowned in glory and honor. He talks about the repentance of Judah and the remnant being restored, just like Paul talked about in Romans chapter 11, uh, and that the day of the Lord will come. And that's the passage we read in chapter 14, uh, verse 9. The Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be the Lord is one and his name one. So in this uh, two-part series this week and next week, we're going to look at the certainty of the kingdom, the characteristics of the kingdom, and the challenge of the kingdom. But today I want to focus just on the first point there, the certainty of the kingdom. We'll save the characteristics and the challenge for next week, but I want us to zero in on the certainty of the kingdom this morning. Now, we've talked about this off and on over the last several weeks in this series on Israel, but uh, today what we're going to do is drive home the point that there is absolute certainty that a kingdom is coming. I realize it's been a while. We look around and we think, 
well, maybe he's not going to come back after all. But you can count on it. He will come back. As we said, the Lord shall be king over the whole earth. In that day it shall be the Lord is one and his name one. A couple of uh, charts that I think illustrate the big picture here before we get to several passages that uh, clearly show the certainty of the kingdom. So I've shown this before, but I want to reiterate it. If we think of the purposes of God in human history, if this circle represents God's plan for the universe, he's doing a lot of things along the way. Obviously, in the center of this is God's plan for the salvation of individual men. Uh, no question that from the moment mankind fell in the garden, God set in place a plan to redeem mankind. He rescued us from our own predicament, rescued us from the penalty of sin by sending His eternal Son, our Savior, to the earth to take our sins upon Him, uh, die on a cruel death on a cross, rise again the third day, defeating death, hell, and the grave. And by purchasing our forgiveness with His own blood, the atoning sacrifice of Christ, He is offered to then turn, turn around and freely offer that to anyone who will accept it simply by faith. You can't earn it. You can't be good enough to get it. Uh, there's nothing you can do to overcome the penalty of sin apart from receiving Christ's payment on your behalf. I got an email from someone this week. Um, I finally blocked this person because they send some pretty nasty, obscene emails, actually. Uh, but this one, they said uh, that, you know, I'm crazy to think that certain people who do certain things could ever possibly end up in heaven. And uh, that's just reflective of a mindset that a lot of people have, that somehow our entrance into heaven is contingent upon our behavior, our works, our performance. And people that are way over here doing things really, really, really bad, there's no way they can get in. But over here, as long as you don't do anything too bad, you only commit little sins, somehow God's going to wink and nod at that and you're in like Flint, right? They, they, don't, they, they think that the whole system is based on performance. And what this emailer didn't understand, and what a lot of people don't understand, is that God's plan uh, is to redeem us freely because there's nothing within mankind that can be good enough uh, to, to overcome the, the penalty of sin. We're born sinners. And no matter how many good works you add to that mixture, there's still that sin there that needs to be dealt with. It needs to be uh, uh, you know, declared righteous. It needs to be purified. We need to be washed in the blood, as the old hymn says, right? Uh, you know, the illustration that's been used often, you know, if you, uh, my, my daughter, one of my daughters last night made uh, brownies. I never get told there's brownies until I happen to walk through the kitchen and see a pan with foil over it. And I go, hmm, I wonder what that is. So I came in from my office and thought, I wonder what that, and there was brownies. And there, of course, by the time I noticed them, two-thirds of them were gone, uh, thanks to my son, no doubt. But anyway... Uh, this illustration, I'm sure you've heard it before, but suppose someone was going to make brownies and they were going to put in that brownies one tiny little, maybe one tablespoon, let's say, of dog poop. But they're going to put three cups of sugar. No, make it four cups. Make it five cups. How much sugar would they need to put in that batch of brownies before you'd eat those brownies? Now, I mean, if you're desperate, I mean, all analogies fall short. I get it, right? If you're on a desert island, it's the only thing you're about to die. Okay, I get it. But you see my point. You just can't cover up that, you know, that dog poop in this batch of brownies, right? It needs to be completely scrapped and made new. And that's what Jesus Christ did when he died on the cross for our sins. He gives us a new life, entirely new, right, uh, without sin. 
Now, until we get to heaven, we're still dealing with that old man, that old nature. And as I said, sometimes our practical behavior doesn't match our positional righteousness in Christ. That's the whole goal of the Christian life as we live out our days waiting for the Lord's return or before we go the way of all flesh. And the fact that we might sometimes not act like the new man in Christ that we're supposed to be doesn't mean we're not a Christian. So absolutely, this is a part and parcel of God's total plan. It's to redeem mankind the moment we uh, took that uh, great big bite of the proverbial apple in the garden, right? But that's not all God is doing. And, and sadly, a lot of people misunderstand God's plan of the ages and think that from cover to cover, that's all, that's the sum total of it. And that's what, you know, amillennialists and replacement theologians and those who don't understand the national promises to Israel, that's what they think that it's about that. But God's doing a lot more than just that. He has a plan for Israel, as we've been talking about. He has a plan for the church. We see his plan for Israel first referenced in, in uh, to Abraham in Genesis 12. We see God's plan for the church outlined in Ephesians chapter 6. We see that he's got a plan for angels. He's got a plan for demons. You know, Jesus himself said that uh, when he comes back, those who have not placed their faith in him are going to be cast into the everlasting fire. That was what? prepared for the devil and his angels. That's part of God's plan, right? So this is the, the plan. We could put a lot of other things inside this circle, a plan for uh, creation, uh, to redeem the, the whole planet, in fact. Uh, as you've heard me say many times, the curse of sin not only affected our own relationship with our Creator, but it affected all created things. It's the reason we have thorns on rose bushes and poison ivy and hurricanes like Hurricane Harvey. But all of that, is going to be made new. And so with that backdrop, what we see is the creative plan of God. That's how it all started. He spoke the world into existence by the creation of the world. And then after the flood, the creation of the nations as people spread out. And then the creation of Israel and ultimately the creation of the church. This is God's creative part of the plan. But God's creation was corrupted by sin, as we talked about. So God's plan also involves the redemptive side. And in reverse order, we're going to see the redemption of each of these groups, the redemption of the church at the rapture, and then the redemption of Israel when they're restored into their land in belief and regathered at the second coming of Christ, and then the retribution of the nations. You better believe that part of God's redemptive plan means ridding the world of sin. And at the end of the kingdom, at the end of the millennial phase of the kingdom, Christ will take the throne, the great white throne. And anybody like this emailer who thinks they can find their way into a right relationship with the Holy God simply by their performance is going to hear those awful words, depart from me, I never knew you. And it, it, the great white throne is not a time when believers and unbelievers are alike standing before God and then God's going to kind of take inventory, see how good you are, and then decide who's in and who's out, right? That's not the way it's going to work. Um, and by the way, imagine, let, let's just for the sake of argument, assume that our entrance into heaven was based on our good works. Imagine being that guy standing before the gates of heaven someday, and God says, well, let me see. Let me take a look at your list here. Yeah, pretty good. Pretty good. Yeah, did a lot. Wow. Oop, last page. Hmm. Oh, boy, I'm so sorry to have to tell you, but, you know, you had... 10,472 good works, and the threshold was 10,473. You just missed it by one good work. I'm so sorry. See you later. See, that's, that's, what, that's the world you live in if you think God's going to get you in based on works. There's going to be that line where one guy has enough, the next guy doesn't. And what if you missed it by one good work? But thankfully, our entrance into heaven is not 
by works, but by grace. Not by works of righteousness which we do, but according to his mercy he saved us. For by grace are we saved through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So the great white throne is only unbelievers. Jesus makes it clear the moment you place your faith in him, you shall never come into judgment. You've passed from death to life. You don't, have, you don't face judgment. You've already been declared righteous. So the great white throne is that moment when all unbelievers who refuse to receive the free gift of eternal life, not something you can earn or be good enough to get. You just have to accept the gift. It's freely offered. It has to be freely received, and you receive it by faith. And those who rejected it will be cast into the lake of fire. And then finally, the redemption of all of creation with the um, as we read about in Revelation 21, the creation of a new heavens and a new earth. But all of this is to bring God his glory. But this is what we're talking about this morning is the end of the story, the end of God's plan of human history, the redemption of all of creation. And if we look at it in terms of that plan of the ages that I've shown several times in this series, remember we talked last week about this transitional period of time, the tribulation, that seven-year period, the end of Daniel's prophecy, that will lead us from this present age into the kingdom. We're living right now in the church age, what the Bible calls the last days, because it's the last age prior to the kingdom. But someday when Christ comes back, we're going to see his plan shift into the kingdom phase, and that's it. Time shall be no more, and God's plan of the ages has come full circle back to a pre-fall Edenic state with no sin or sinners on the earth. Uh, looking at just an end times, we're talking about this period of time at the end of the end times. The kingdom phase. Notice there's two phases to the kingdom. The millennial phase on this present earth, the first thousand years, but then the eternal state of the new heavens and the new earth. And that's what we're talking about. So the certainty of the kingdom, you see it all the way through the Old Testament. You see it in God's unconditional covenant with David that we talked about a few weeks ago, 2 Samuel 7, 16. Your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Now that hasn't happened yet, right? For those who suggest that the kingdom promises are all spiritualized and not literal, I mean, imagine being David at this time. David lived in a context historically of the ancient Near East where there were kingdoms, thrones, and, and, and uh, you know, temple, not so much temples, but castles and dwelling places of kings, the, kind of their, their center point where they ruled their kingdoms from. And so when God promises him a kingdom and a throne um, and a house, a temple, how would David have understood that? The only way he possibly could have understood it, literally, indeed, his son went on to build the temple and to sit in it on a literal brick-and-mortar throne, if you will. So, of course, he understood it, literally. And to come, to, to come back and say a thousand years after he was given this promise that somehow the New Testament abrogates those promises and what God really meant when he told David that is you're going to have this spiritualized kingdom is disingenuous, and it means David could not possibly have understood what God meant because he didn't reveal the truth of it for a thousand years later. No, as we shall see, it is a literal kingdom. One of only two psalms written by Solomon, speaking of Solomon, is Psalm 72. The other is Psalm 127, and he speaks of the certainty of the coming kingdom. He says, He shall have dominion also from the sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth, and yes, all kings shall bow down before him, all nations shall serve him. Now, again, has that happened yet? That's the question. He's talking about the universality of the Messiah's reign. Uh, does uh, Xi Jinping in China, is he worshiping Jesus today and bowing down before him? What about uh, 
whoever the fellow is in Iran, Ahmadinejad. I'm not sure if he's still the tyrant over there, uh, but uh, I mean, is uh, is the, you know the, the leader of Hamas? Is he worshiping the 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 King of Kings? I mean, for that matter, is Biden worshiping the King of Kings, right? Or Trump? Let's be fair, right? So all nations, all means all, and that has not happened yet. Isaiah, I mentioned, has a lot to say about the coming kingdom. In chapter 2, we read, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. The Bible describes a time in the kingdom when all the Gentile nations will come up to Jerusalem for the feasts and festivals and will worship the Lord on his holy temple. When it says exalted above the hills there, remember in the ancient Near East, where they had all these pagan gods, uh, you know, through the, through the years, they thought the higher the hill, the closer you were to these gods, the stars, right? And so what, what this prophecy is saying is that, look, you, you pagans need to understand that someday there's going to be a king that's exalted above all the hills, right? We don't look to the hills as Psalm, I think it's uh, 127, don't quote me on that. Anyway, we don't look to the hills, we look to the maker of the hills, right? Uh, for King and Country has a great song about that. I love that. Uh, uh, shoulders. So he's, he's elevating this God above all other gods and talking about the future day when every nation will come up and worship him. Uh, verse 3, many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall be, I love this passage, they shall beat their plow, their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Now get the picture. The word learn there in yellow, that's the Hebrew word. It means to be instructed or be skillful at. And so what he's saying is when Christ returns, nobody will need to be skilled at warfare because there won't be any war. When Christ returns, all the weapons of war, the swords, the spears, they're going to be repurposed as farming implements because you won't need them. No one's going to need to fight any wars when the Prince of Peace is on the throne. And later Isaiah in chapter 9 describes Jesus as the Prince of Peace who's going to take the throne. It's going to be an unprecedented time of peace. In fact, in chapter 11, he describes it this way, The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together. Fatling is just a fatted calf. And notice, a little child shall lead them. That's, that's hard to fathom, isn't it? You know, here in Colorado, we know a thing or two about big cats, don't we? If you, especially if you live in the mountains. We caught one when we lived at higher elevation on our game camera one time. Saw them frequently. Um, sometimes hikers will come across them, hunters. And, of course, we, they're in the news a lot. Sometimes there's lion attacks. And, sadly, sometimes people are even killed by a lion attack. And so it's hard for us to imagine a little defenseless calf or a big old scrumptious fully mature fatted calf just hanging out with a, a, a lion right or a leopard hanging out with a young goat right it's, it's hard for us to imagine letting your child hang out with these creatures 
in a day like today. I mean, just imagine you're, you know, you, you live in the mountains, your six-year-old uh, daughter says, uh, hey, mom, I'm going to go outside in the backyard and play with the mountain lion for a little bit. I'll be back in in a few minutes. I mean, th those types of thoughts are foreign to us. But in the kingdom someday, when the king of kings takes the throne, that's going to be the norm. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. As water covers the sea, is, is the earth full of the knowledge of the Lord? Not hardly. Not hardly. And then before we turn to the New Testament, I want to take a moment to, to walk through this great psalm in Psalm 2. Da King David wrote this. It's messianic. Uh, and he's talking about the coming kingdom someday. And, and it's got four stanzas. He begins with, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? Notice the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. That's Christ. Well, what are these rulers and kings saying amongst themselves as they form this conspiracy? They're saying, let us cast let, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their courts from us. Notice there is capitalized. That's talking about the triune God. Uh, and this is a passage that I've cited often in my last three books as a proof text for the conspiracy. There is a conspiracy where world leaders are conspiring with Satan to destroy God and break off the bonds of his control. As I've said often, Satan has control issues. He doesn't like that God controls the world that he created, and he doesn't. So he tried to take over heaven. He got uh, that, that coup attempt failed miserably. He took one third of the angels with him. And now he's trying to take over God's created realm, the earth. And he's doing it with the help of these earthly kings that are wanting to, uh, to, to break the cords of God's control. Well, the second stanza tells us how God responds to that. So here's God sitting in the heavens looking at this futile attempt to take over his world. And it says, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord, whenever you see Lord in all caps, remember that's Yahweh, the one true God, shall hold them in derision. And then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep pleasure. Watch this. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. This is what we call in uh, prophecy a prolepsis. It's a statement of something that has not yet happened in time, space, and matter as if it's as good as done. Because we need to remember, God is outside of time, space, and matter. He spoke the world into existence and, in fact, created time, space, and matter. So from his perspective, he's looking over here and seeing Satan and his earthly accomplices try to do everything they can. You know, the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab, Yuval Noah Harari, the Council on Foreign Relations, the Trilateral Commission, the World Health Organization, all of these groups that I talk about in my books. He's watching them work together to try to take over this world, and they will achieve a limited success at their goal for a seven-year period when Satan, through the Antichrist, takes control of the world. And, and we may be well on our way to this one-world system even before that time. It's just that the Antichrist won't step into it until the, the 70th week of Daniel. But God's watching this, and what they don't know is that God, who's outside of time, can see way over here to the, the end, and at the end he sees, my king is on my holy hill of Zion. He's already there, right? In the third stanza, he goes on to say emphatically with a decree, the Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now this is a passage that because the Bible wasn't written in English, people are all over the map trying to understand begotten because the word begotten there doesn't mean what we think it means. In other words, given birth to in that sense. What he's saying is today, what day? When the kingdom comes, 
that's when the kingdom will be inaugurated. And, and he makes that clear because he says, uh, Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. That has not happened yet. And this is a fascinating passage because in Revelation 19, which we're going to read in a moment, he quotes this very verse from Psalm 2. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Today I have begotten you, the day of the second coming, the day when he takes the throne. And so the fourth and final stanza is how should they respond? How should these kings that are plotting a vain thing, and it's never going to happen, they're never going to take complete control away from God. He is sovereign. And so he addresses them directly. Now, therefore, be wise. You know, wise up, we might say in English, right? Wise up, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun. Remember in the ancient Near East, and it, it's a practice that continues to this day in pagan groups, you know, you would kiss the ring of the king to show your submission and your respect and your obeisance to him. And what he's saying is you need to stop looking at each other and look to the eternal son of God. Notice it's capitalized there as it should be. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. In other words, in light of the certainty of Christ's reign, all the elites of the earth should fear and tremble. They should show their respect and submission for Jesus Christ, the coming king. The certainty of the kingdom. We see this in the New Testament. Uh, right from the beginning when Gabriel announces to Mary that she's carrying the Christ child, what does he tell her? He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. You see three components mentioned there that we read about in 2 Samuel 17. A house, a throne, and a kingdom. That's what God promised David, and that promise is still intact when Gabriel talks to Mary. Mary would have understood that there was a temple standing. Herod's temple was standing in her day. And so she's, she knew what throne he was talking about, what house he was talking about, and what kingdom was being uh, promised. And then Jesus himself, at the end of his earthly ministry, we looked at this verse last week, uh, talks about when he comes back at the end of the seven-year tribulation, that it is then that he will sit on the throne of his glory. So he didn't take that throne in his first advent. As we saw, they crowned him with uh, thorns instead of a king's crown. And then after his resurrection, he appeared for 40 days to thousands of people. And on the day of his ascension, he's meeting with the disciples on the top of the Mount of Olives. And he says, Lord, the disciples say to him, Lord, will you at this time restore your kingdom to Israel? I mean, they were still obsessed with the kingdom. They began to put the pieces together more. They began to understand the fullness of what the Old Testament prophets had talked about, that he would come as a, both a suffering servant and lamb of God to take away the sins of the world, but also as a victorious warrior who would you know, institute righteousness and peace and justice. And so they, after post-resurrection, they began to say, oh, okay, we understand it now. But Lord, now back to more important matters. Is it time yet? Remember, they had asked Jesus, when is the kingdom going to come? And he says, you know, this would have been the perfect time for him, by the way, to disavow them of the notion that the kingdom is going to be literal if, in fact, it weren't. 
He could have said, haven't you figured it out yet? It's not going to be a literal kingdom. There's not going to be a literal temple, a literal throne, a literal you know, kingdom. It's going to be spiritual in your heart. But he didn't say that. In fact, he affirms the literalness of it by simply saying, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. Times, Greek word chronos, it means length or duration. Uh, seasons is the Greek word kairos, it means exact time, exact moment. It's not for you to know how long it's going to be till I come back. Uh, it's not for you to know the exact date, but I'm coming back is the implication. And so he ascends, and they're told to go back to Jerusalem and be about the Father's business. And then <clears throat> let's close out with Revelation 19, a fascinating passage that I think every believer should read at least once a month. You've heard me say that before. Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. This is at the Battle of Armageddon at the end of the seven-year tribulation. He who sat on him was called Faithful and True. As I pointed out before, it's, it's really fascinating when you read Revelation. It begins with a rider on a white horse in Revelation 6-2, who is the Antichrist, the fake, the imposter, the one who's going out to conquer the world, the text tells us, conquering and to conquer. But then after the seal, trumpet, and bold judgments, after the seven years of the, the beast and the false prophet ruling the world, the mark of the beast, all of these things they're trying to do, the abomination of desolation to try to take over the world. Then Christ comes back. And this rider on the white horse is 100% opposite. It's not an imposter, not a fake, not an anti-Christ, but faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war, whereas the antichrist has ulterior motives for trying to, to wage war on the world, uh, power, and, and greed and lust. Christ is coming back in righteousness to judge and make war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. That's us. The bride of Christ, having been raptured prior to the start of the seven-year tribulation, we're now coming back with him to help him rule and reign in the kingdom. And now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. Remember, we talked about that from Psalm 2. This is that moment. This is that moment. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What a day. See, a better day really is coming. We pray, Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus, come today. I hope it is today. Uh, but rest assured, at some point, we're going to meet the Lord in the air, and that's going to set in motion all of these end times prophecies as they begin to fall, one right after the other, right into place, exactly as God's Word said they are. The certainty of the kingdom. More and more, it seems like you know the world around us it resembles a disaster-stricken planet devastated by the hurricane of sin, evil, and satanic warfare. But hang on, because a better day is coming. So next week, we'll pick up with the, cert, the, uh, the characteristics and the challenge of the kingdom, which I think will fill us with even more expectations. We see some of the details. But for today, here's the takeaway. Remember, things will not always be as they are now. So approach each new day with a kingdom mentality. Not a kingdom now, mentality, because the kingdom is not now. You know, a lot of Bible teachers who, who I think have the best of intentions, they're godly people, they love the Lord, but they're trying to get us to conjure up this notion that 
we're living in the kingdom. It's this Christian hedonism, one, one scholar calls it. And we just got to embrace the kingdom now. And, 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 but this is nothing like the kingdom that God's word describes. What do we see next week? It's not even close. I mean, this is the best we can get. I mean, if this is the kingdom, I mean, I feel like God owes me an apology, right? That's not what I read. That's not what I was expecting. You know, it's like when you're a kid and, you know, you're, you're expecting a... Uh, I, I rem- this just popped into my mind. I'll close with this. But I remember as a kid one time, my parents were on a business trip. My mom went with my dad. We had a babysitter or something for a few days. They come back and they called us and they told us that they had gotten us a present, me and my sisters. And what is it? What is it? Oh, it's, we got you a dog. But it's a very special dog. Well, I mean, I'm like eight years old. I'm thinking, and you couldn't think of a better gift for an eight-year-old boy. I couldn't wait to see this dog. So they come in, and they had gotten us one of those pretend invisible dogs that had the collar and the stiff leash. You see them at airports all the time, and it's a gag gift, you know. Here's your new dog. He's invisible. What are you going to name him? I was so mad. I wanted to punch him right in the nose, you know. I felt cheated. Well, if this is the kingdom, that's the way I feel. Uh, this is not the kingdom. This is the, the, the whole world is under the sway of the wicked one, First John 5 tells us. Satan is the prince of the power of the air. He's the god of this age, but he won't be forever. Someday he's going to be banished. And we need to approach each new day with a kingdom mentality, looking forward to a better day that's coming. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this uh, encouragement from your word. Thank you for your goodness, for your grace. Um, Lord, we, we know that things are tough right now, but Lord, that's what faith is all about. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. So teach us to hang on to your word, to believe every word of it, to trust it, and to look forward to that, to that new day that's coming. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.